Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa for an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abe Ahmed receives Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo and South Africa reaffirms commitment to enhance its climate change plans. In economics news, South Africa's president cuts short his trip to Egypt and in sports news, South Africa beat Lesotho to reach Kasafa Cup finals, semi-finals. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Somali security forces tackling an Islamist attack on a hotel in the capital Mogadishu have killed two of the gunmen. They've also rescued 82 people, including civilians and officials. It's still not clear if anybody else died. AFP News Agency reports that the attack began at around 7 p.m. last night when a gun battle broke out between the Al-Shabaab fighters and members of the security forces guarding checkpoints leading to the nearby presidential palace. The Youth League Hotel, which is popular with government officials and business people, have suffered three previous attacks by Al-Shabaab. The jihadist movement Al-Shabaab said in a statement online that it carried out the attack. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa is due to be briefed by the power utility ESCOM on measures being taken to help solve the current electricity crisis. Ramaphosa cut short his official visit to Egypt after holding official talks with President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi to address problems facing the power utility, which resulted in the escalation of load shedding to Stage 6. He will also visit flood-ravaged communities in Gauteng province. Ramaphosa spoke the president took the decision to return home and attend to urgent domestic priorities, um, having received, after he had departed South Africa, uh, an update on the stage six load shedding uh, that had been announced by ESCOM. The president is expected to receive a full briefing on measures that are being taken to mitigate the current electricity crisis and ensure that all units are restored to full capacity as soon as possible. The U.S. government has imposed financial sanctions on five South Sudanese who it believes were involved in the kidnapping or killing of a human rights lawyer and an opposition politician. Lawyer Dong Samuel Luhuk and Agri Idri, a member of the Sudan People's Liberation Movement in opposition, disappeared in Kenya in January 2017. The five named by the U.S. government are Abud Stephen Tangol, Mulal Dal Murwell, Michael Hujen, John Toplam, and Angelo Kutgarang. 
They have not yet commented on the U.S. statement. The sanctions will affect any property and interests the men have in the U.S. The Democratic-controlled U.S. House Judiciary Committee has unveiled charges against President Donald Trump, a key move in impeaching him. The first article, revealed by committee chief Jerry Nadler, accuses Trump of abuse of power and the second accuses him of obstructing Congress. The Republican president is said to have withheld aid to Ukraine for domestic political reasons. Trump insists that he has done nothing wrong. At a rally in Pennsylvania, Trump read the articles. The House Democrats announced these two flimsy, pathetic, ridiculous articles of impeachment. The House Democrats are walking back from everything they claimed with today's announcement. They're now admitting there was no collusion, there was no obstruction of justice, and there were no crimes whatsoever. There are no crimes, it says it. There are no crimes. And finally, volcanic tremors have increased on New Zealand's White Island, further delaying the recovery of the victims of Monday's fatal eruption. The mountain erupted while dozens of tourists were on the island. So far, six people have been confirmed dead, eight are missing on the island, presumed dead, while another 25 are in critical condition in hospital. Authorities say there are also poisonous gases coming from the volcanic vent and that the island is blanketed in a thick layer of acidic ash. That's the news. Headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abe Ahmed has received the Nobel Peace Prize and hailed the role played by former foe Eritrea in resolving the long running conflict between the two countries. Abe received the prestigious award in a formal ceremony at Oslo City Hall on Tuesday. Abe won the prize in in part for making peace with Eritrea after one of Africa's longest-running conflicts. Koleto Wanjohi reports from Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has been chosen for the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize for his work in mending relations with Eritrea and further afield in assisting Sudan to arrange a transitional government, as well as offering support to Kenya and Somalia in their maritime dispute. In November, at a regional meeting, he spoke about achieving a long-awaited Eritrea-Ethiopia peace deal. After 20 years standoff, Ethiopia and Eritrea have decided to turn a page. The new chapter is not only reflected in normalization of relations, but in the expression of commitment to join economic development. Here at home, Abi Ahmed is recognized for the political and economic reforms he is making. The Peace Prize has been welcomed by some Ethiopians, but for others it is a reminder of the work that still needs to be done, especially in tackling ethnic violence. First of all, I would like to con- congratulate him 
so when he come back, I think he have uh, a lot of work. Now we are fighting each other. Stop tribalism in Ethiopia. That is my message. He should stand uh, firm against tribalist forces throughout the country who are killing civilians. Since Abiy Ahmed came to power in April 2018, Ethiopia has seen an increase in ethnic violence. In October, over 80 people died in clashes across the country and a state of emergency is still in place in the south. In another part of the same region, over 1 million people were forcefully displaced by ethnic clashes in April. The United Nations is concerned that although over half have been resettled, some of the remaining IDPs are unable to receive humanitarian assistance because they are cut off by ongoing clashes. William Davidson is a senior analyst at the International Crisis Group. So far what's happened is that with this opening of the political space that we have seen, it has allowed space for all sorts of different groups to come back into Ethiopia or groups that were in Ethiopia and are now newly emboldened and they are all claiming um, or pursuing their different interests at the same time and this is leading to considerable instability. Abiy Ahmed is aware of the challenges ahead. The Prime Minister has named his leadership Medemer, which means cooperation. In November, he disbanded the old ruling coalition that was comprised of mainly four ethnic groups and replaced it with a new one. This coalition is made up of eight parties from nine different regions. That report by Coleto Anjohi in Addis Ababa. The General Secretary of the South African Communist Party, Bladen Zamande, has reiterated the party's call for a change in the manner in which the tripartite alliance operates. He has told the SACP Special National Congress that it must not hand the ANC a blank check ahead of a 2021 local government election. Zamande has also cautioned against the fight against state capture and corruption becoming a pretext for government pushing forward with privatization. The party is meeting for a midterm review of its policies following its July 2017 40th Congress. Busichimombe reports. In presenting his political report, SACP General Secretary Bladen Zimande told the nearly 800 delegates attending the party's Special National Congress that while the SACP in principle will continue to provide electoral support for the ANC, it must hold the governing party accountable for its conduct with regards to how a reconfigured alliance should work. We must maintain ANC-led electoral lists. However, where, like with the forthcoming local government election, the agreed-upon spirit of the reconfiguration of the alliance, as well as consensus-seeking consultation is undermined, we urge our structures to report that to the Central Committee with recommendations. What is to be done may include that in a place like Maluti Apofung, honestly, as allies, we cannot, Comrade DSG, support what the ANC is doing there. We can't campaign for the ANC in local election government being in that state, that municipality. The SACP General Secretary outlined the key challenges facing the country's working class and the party's efforts to advance a socialist agenda. Amongst these, he said, was the push for privatization of the country's state-owned assets. Zimande cautioned that the effort by President Cyril Ramaphosa's government to cleanse the country of corruption may be used by some to re-establish a neoliberal agenda for the country, as was witnessed in the 1996 Growth Employment and Redistribution Strategy Gear. 
He says this policy framework is at the heart of many of the problems plaguing the country today. Even in the early 2000s, we were told that ESCOM power stations must be maintained, must be renewed, and we must also build extra generation capacity. We did not do that because we wanted to privatize. So today we are sitting now in the middle of load shedding. It doesn't come from the top there. It's our own failure that is leading to this load shedding. Today, Comrade Jesse, we have deployed me to be Minister of Higher Education, Science and Technology. You know why there was fees must fall? Because we did not invest in infrastructure and students, including student accommodation, because of neoliberal policies. Efforts to transform the country's financial sector, a long-time program of the SACP, should be intensified, according to Nzimande. He said workers must ensure that they have a say in how their resources are invested. That is why the PIC has been funding some of all these shenanigans that it has been funding, some of them. Because the working class has just allowed its own resources to be invested without itself making a say of how that investment needs to be done. What is it that's driving the Johannesburg Stock Exchange? It's your own insurance policies and your pension and provident funds. Look at Old Mutual now. There are these little fights in Old Mutual, skirmishes. The working class is folding its arms, watching. Yet it's your money that makes 12% of Old Mutual. Zimande said that the Congress should discuss whether state-owned enterprises should not go back to their policy departments instead of being located within the Department of Public Enterprises. To advance working-class power, he said that the SACP will engage with COSATU to convene a meeting of all trade union federations in the country, regardless of political affiliation. The Special Congress enters its third day on Wednesday. That report by Busi Chimombe. South Africa's ruling ANC has sought to address the divisive issue of deployment with its alliance partners, the SACP and Trade Union Confederation. Union Federation, COSATU. The party's Deputy President David Mabuza says a retreat has been organized to discuss the fair deployment of ANC, COSATU and SACP public representatives. He was speaking at the SACP 4th Special National Congress underway in Kempton Park, east of Johannesburg. Ndebo Mugobo has more. Communists singing their hearts out. This is how they greeted ANC Deputy President David Mabuza when he entered the SACP Congress Hall on Tuesday. They were simply saying they want state power and the agenda is socialism. But the ANC second in command was well aware that this Congress is called, among others, to debate and finalize if the SACP will contest future elections independently. For some time now, delegates have been complaining about the dominance of the ANC on candidate lists, policy proposals and deployment processes, saying many SACP and COSATO members are being sidelined. Already a discussion document titled New Possibilities, New Challenges and New SACP Responsibilities is up for discussion at this gathering. But Mabuza said they are working hard to correct the wrongs of the past, insisting it's got a formula to resolve the matter. 
We have tabled the paper on the reconfiguration of the alliance. We have tabled this paper in the NEC. But the mood that is surrounding this paper is that there's no divorce here. No one is leaving this family. We are prepared to address all the issues that affect the alliance. And remember, the hope of our people is in this alliance. Well, Mina can say that where I come from, in Pumalang, I've resolved this matter. Even at this level, we are going to resolve it. I've got the formula to resolve it, and I'm going to resolve it. The ANC Deputy President also said a retreat is in the offing to discuss deployment in government and in strategic state-owned entities. We have decided that we are going to take a retreat to deal with issues of deployment. I've been criticized in the deployment committee and I've been criticized within the ANC that we are not doing well in the deployment of cadres into strategic positions. The recent deployment of the CEO of ESCOM is a case in point. And this is a decision that we took in the deployment committee, all of us. And people are now quiet. The only person that is being blamed is the president. The decision to deploy the rater as the CEO is the decision that we took collectively. He also used the occasion to apologize to the nation for the persistent load shedding that has recently engulfed the nation. We are mindful of the challenges that are faced by ESCOM. And probably we should take this opportunity and apologize to the public for all the inconvenience that our people, business people, are going through because of the challenges in ESCOM. We cannot allow ESCOM to fail. We'll do everything in our power to get ESCOM right. We can try and provide every reason behind these disruptions, at times risking repeating ourselves. But the bottom line is that we've got power stations that are very old. Meanwhile, President Cyril Ramaphosa will meet with board and management of the National Power Utility later this morning, where he will be briefed on plans to mitigate and resolve the current power crisis. The president is also expected to visit flood-stricken areas including Tembisa and Ekuruleni. I am Tebu Mokobo, Kempton Park, east of Johannesburg. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
As load-shedding incidents continue to plague South Africa, large businesses say contingency costs amid rolling blackouts are eating into their revenue. Africa's third-largest platinum miner, Impala Platinum, and mobile network giant MTN say they are spending hundreds of millions daily on contingency measures against load-shedding. Naledin Noble reports. As load shedding persists across the country, mobile connectivity also continues to be affected. An executive for corporate affairs at MTN, Jackie O'Sullivan, says MTN is spending up to 100 million rand on battery generators for every three days of electricity blackouts. Yesterday, the country's embattled power utility, ESCOM, implemented stage six load shedding, which is the highest level that saw 6,000 megawatts of power cut off the grid. We start moving into um, the the areas where it's just not giving us enough time to uh, reload our batteries. So we've got batteries that have a um, a capacity for 6 to 12 hours, but we do need 12 to 18 hours to reload those batteries. So that's where the complexity starts to get into it. So we've got batteries, we have generators um, on a sort of, at the moment, we are fortunate that we don't have that many sites down, but we are still spending about a million rand every three days um, on fuel for the generators that we brought in so the costs are high but our obviously our real concern is keeping people connected impala platinum says it loses 100 million rand in revenue for every shift that is lost due to load shedding this after impala stopped night shift operations and plant processing due to power shortages group corporate executive at impala platinum johan theron says the situation puts pressure on job security yeah, so anything beyond stage four really makes it impossible for us to risk and be conscious. We have to prioritize people in this situation, which then means, you know, we will lose production. Um, and, and that obviously has a significant impact for us, for the economy, but also for our suppliers. Um. Chief economist at NetBank, Dennis Dyke, says the current load shedding is going to have a detrimental impact on the country's fourth quarter growth figures. Dyke says GDP for 2019 is expected to be as low as 0.3%. Well, GDP already looks as though it's going to be very, very weak. Um, so we, we're looking for the year as a whole about 0.4%, um, possibly 0.3%, but um, probably around about 0.4%. Uh, the recent load shedding, of course, is not going to help us finish the year on any sort of um, any sort of strength. Uh, and unfortunately, what's likely is that uh, the load shedding is going to continue into next year, um, and probably from the second half of January onwards. Um, so it's it's likely that we'll we'll see another very weak start to the year. ESCOM says power outages will continue for the rest of the week. The country's power utility says technical problems and persistent rains led to several call handling challenges. I'm Naledi Ngobo in Johannesburg. South Africa's Environment Minister Barbara Creasy has reaffirmed South Africa's commitment to enhance its climate change plans by 2020 in line with the Paris Agreement. In September, President Ramaphosa committed to the United Nations General Assembly that the country will re-evaluate the carbon reduction targets. Creasy says that this will happen after a consultative process with all stakeholders. South Africa's commitments include reducing carbon emissions by 42% by the year 2025. Nomabulani reports from Madrid and Spain. South Africa's statement lacked detail on the progress being made on climate action in the country. Instead, the Environment Minister, Barbara Creasy, 
focused yet again on Africa's position at these negotiations, calling for shared equity and support in addressing the climate crisis. This includes reaching agreement on the financial support to enable developing countries to communicate more ambitious adaptation and mitigation contributions. On carbon reduction targets, the minister explained consultations needed to happen for the mission to be accomplished. South African environmentalists attending COP say the country's statement wasn't impressive at all. Rather, it was a rehash of an already existing commitment. Happy Kambule is a senior political advisor at Greenpeace. What we're looking for, at least from 2020 onwards, is that we will stop any and all fossil fuel development, particularly coal development in South Africa, due to the fact that at this point in time we can see the shortcomings, and largely one of them is climate change related. Um, we are also looking to see that a just transition process has been developed and a plan is put into the National Determined Contribution, which we're going to forward in 2020. Meanwhile, the president of COP25 says that the climate emergency can't only be tackled at a political level. National commitments are necessary, yes, but they're not sufficient. Meanwhile, the president of COP25, Caroline Schmidt, says the climate emergency can't only be tackled at a political level. We have to bring on board everyone. We need all of you. A change of course, taking us from negotiation to action, mainstreaming climate action into all productive sectors, making them part of the solution. Minister Creasy is facilitating the deadlock talks on the mechanisms that should see the developed countries supporting climate action in the global south. French Minister of Ecological Transition Elizabeth Bourne has called out her counterparts in the West, saying she rejects that there's a hold-up in finalising Article 6 because this means that ambitions and actions are also on hold. I'm Noma Bolani in Madrid, Spain. Every day, 33,000 girls under the age of 18 are married, often against their will, and one in three women will face sexual violence. Ending these scourges is the aim of the 16 Days Against Violence campaign led by the UN Sexual and Reproductive Health Agency, which ended on Tuesday, the 10th of December, which is International Human Rights Day. Here's the agency's executive director, Dr. Natalia Canem, speaking to UN News' Daniel Johnson in Geneva. The 16 Days Against Violence campaign ends today on Human Rights Day, and it is really important to highlight the prevalence, how common violence against women and girls is. And it's also really important to act during the decade of action on the Sustainable Development Goals. These 16 days are crucial. So how widespread is gender-based violence? It's shocking that gender-based violence is so prevalent. One in three women or girls in their lifetime affected. And in some of the places where the UN serves, like South Sudan, you might as well say one in one because the prevalence is at 90%. And this is trauma. This is trauma that's not only physical, but as women have told me over and over, the wound that you don't see is the one that cuts the deepest. I know that UNFPA, the Agency for Sexual and Reproductive Health, has also done some research into conflict zones, and one of those is Syria. And you spoke to some Syrian girls who said 
The last thing we expected to have to watch out for was sexual violence. We thought it would be bombs. So it isn't just in conflict zones, of course. So what's the action that UNFPA is trying to do right now? The action against sexual and gender-based violence that we need to see is, first of all, empowerment of women and girls to be able to say no during peacetime. This is a problem that's exacerbated in conflict, but it is there and it is still stigmatized so that the victim is still shamed and blamed rather than being able to seek support immediately. Shamed and blamed means being thrown out of school, not being able to keep a job because the employers don't understand that young mothers often on their own, sometimes their families shun them as well. The tragedy about sexual and gender-based violence is that we don't speak out, and so people are scared. Now, why should women and girls live their life in fear? Action against sexual and gender-based violence involves expressing, in no uncertain terms, as the Secretary General has done, zero tolerance. That also means opening the door so that people who have been affected can be treated and healed, but also so that they can seek the justice that they deserve, and so that everyone, men, boys, women, and girls, will be able to understand clearly that this is not normal. That's the whole point. Tell me about the pledges that you're hoping to achieve by 2030 as part of the Sustainable Development Goals. The three zeros of UNFPA speak to the demands that women have for the Sustainable Development Goals era. And first is to meet the unmet need for family planning. This means control over your body, control over your fertility, and it has wonderful knock-on effects for economies. However, the main point is human rights of women and girls. The second one is something that I'm very optimistic that we're going to achieve resoundingly, and that is to end unnecessary deaths during pregnancy and childbirth. But the third one is the toughest one, and that is ending sexual and gender-based violence. This is the whole spectrum from female genital mutilation and the pledge from President Kenyatta in Nairobi when he opened the Nairobi summit last month to end female genital mutilation in Kenya reverberated throughout the country. Now, In a good way. Absolutely, because in the closing, a 13-year-old girl stood up and said, I come from a slum community, and I am so happy to know that my president is going to protect me from being cut. We also have, sadly, a form of gender-based violence, which is the 33,000 girls under the age of 18 who will be married by midnight today. So again, understanding that there is no 14-year-old, there is no 16-year-old who is ready to become a parent, and also that many of these marriages are really not consensual, ergo, they're not marriages. There is coercion. This is a form of violence against girls that needs to come to an end. Just to pick you up on a few of those points that you raised, you mentioned that death among girls in childbirth is the second leading cause of death among 15 to 18-year-olds around the world, I think. It's the leading cause of death among adolescent girls. I stand corrected so we can see immediately the problem. And regionally speaking, where are the areas, the countries and the continents where the problem is highest? Well, the idea of teenage pregnancy disguises sometimes the coercion that can be involved in terms of girls who become pregnant very young. Right now, Latin America and the Caribbean have to face up to having the second highest adolescent pregnancy rate in the world. This is where I hail from, by the way. And Africa has the highest rate. 
I will also rush to say that with migration patterns, we're seeing that certain types of marriages, certain types of pregnancies are occurring all over the world. So every region has this issue, but those are the ones that lead at the moment. Have you seen any technological benefits of things like the internet, the fourth digital revolution? Has that helped your work? We see a dramatic upside coming now from Belarus, where I went to visit offices of Flow, which is the biggest health app in the world at the moment. They have over 30 million monthly subscribers. It happens to be a women's health app, and it started with menstruation. UNFPA, working with this company, has been providing content on a whole range of uh, cycle of life issues mainly for women, uh, up from uh, menstruation all the way to menopause, but also speaking out about uh, violence and what to do if you're affected, what to do if you've been raped, and how to get help, but also how to get allies. So I'm very optimistic about uh, digital technology, while at the same time, of course, the abuse of women and the use of the internet to shame women is something that the UN has allied with women politicians and with others in particular who have been victimized. Any technology, I mean, you know, if you drink enough water, I suppose it can kill you. We are looking for solutions, and that solution and action orientation, I think, is really going to be of great benefit to these young people who want a future that has a dignified potential. That's UNFPA Executive Director Dr. Natalia Canham speaking to Daniel Johnson of UN News in Geneva. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headline, Somali security forces tackling an Islamist attack on a hotel in the capital Mogadishu have killed two of the gunmen and rescued 82 people, including civilians and officials. The U.S. government has imposed finan- financial sanctions on five South Sudanese who it believes were involved in the kidnapping or killing of a human rights lawyer and an opposition politician. And the Democratic-controlled U.S. House Judiciary Committee has unveiled charges Charges against President Donald Trump, a key move in impeaching him. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 7.34 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's Department of Women, Youth and Persons with Disabilities, UN Women and First for Women Insurance have officially launched the 365 Days of Activism for No Violence Against Women and Children under the theme Enough is Enough, 365 Days to End Gender-Based Violence. The objective of the event which took place last night, was to officially extend the 16 days of activism for no violence against women and children campaign to a year-round campaign towards ending gender-based violence. 
as well as to mobilize South Africans to play their part in ending GBVF and to try to pay tribute to the victims who have lo- we have lost through GBVF. To discuss this further, we are now joined on the line by Shoki Shabalala, Director General at South Africa's Department of Women, Youth and Persons with Disabilities. Shoki, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning and good morning to your listeners. And um, maybe a point of correcting of correction, I am the Acting Director General. Thank you, uh, uh, Acting Director General, for that correction. Now, firstly, this is long overdue. 365 days to end gender-based violence. Eventually, it is taking place. So 16 days of activism really isn't enough. What prompted the 365 days of activism for no violence against women and children? Indeed, yesterday we marked the end of the annual 16 days of activism against gender-based violence, uh, which almost runs from the 25th to the 10th of December. But we then felt that it is about time that we revive a resolution or an action plan that was launched by Madame Pumzilem Lambunuga of 365 days, that we should not turn our backs to millions of women who are still subjected to various forms of violence, Um, not only women, but children. We know the experiences that they've been subjected to. We know that they live with trauma. Some of them is irreversible trauma, but also to ensure that we pump up resources from a preventative angle in changing norms and attitudes and continue to work from our offices, through our churches, through various sectors of civil society, labor organizations, because there's also violence in the workplace, and make sure that in the end there is a sustained campaign that doesn't just start on the 25th and end on the 10th, but throughout the year, there are activities that seek to promote and protect the rights of women and girl children. We've seen that during uh, the, the 16 days of activism, um, of violence, uh, ending violence against women and children, there were a number of um, violent deaths against young women who lost their lives. And uh, the theme is enough is enough. Talk us through that enough is enough theme. The thing is expressing the level of um, anger and shame that we have as a country. And we are challenging men to come on board because this is not a woman's problem. This is a man's problem, but it's also a societal problem that requires collective response to it. Therefore, whatever we are doing seeks to galvanize, support and harness response from all the critical stakeholders in our private space, in our public space, schools, all the areas where we know we are subjected to violence. There's no space where we feel safe as women. In your own home, you feel unsafe. You go to church, you feel unsafe. You go to the malls, you feel unsafe. Where will we find space as women where we can comfortably say we are free and we feel safe in our own space or country. So therefore, we are challenging dominant norms of masculinity, issues of sexual entitlement from men. Women are brutally raped. Women are brutally murdered. 
it cannot be that we will continue to live like this when we have a constitution that is so good in promoting and protecting our rights as enshrined in the constitution. Women's rights are human rights too, and our lives matter. There is nothing that justifies the killing of women. No matter how wrong in your view you think that woman is, no justification can be given for raping or killing a woman. It just cannot be acceptable. How will you mobilize South Africans to play their part in ending GBVF? We have launched and unveiled a few key messages that will be rolled out throughout the 365 days. And these are messages that have been jointly crafted with the civil society organizations. We have developed a pledge for men that we will be sharing with most retailers. Um, When men walk in, men should be able to read and be able to even sign and pledge that they will refrain from such conduct if that's what they are doing at that point in time. And if we have good men, we would like good men to reach out and engage other men and reach out to boys in particular so that we begin to have dialogues amongst ourselves and men and live in coexistence. Not this kind of life that we see where when a man sees a woman, it's, it's an object to be attacked. It, it just cannot be allowed to continue to happen in this manner. We will be reaching out through various communication platforms. We have a 365 communication strategy that has been developed, which we will share with all our critical stakeholders so that we continue to use every space, social media, to reach out and engage with all members of civil society. There's been talk about uh, how we need to start attacking um, these issues from an early age where young boys are taught from home and in schools from an early age how to treat young girls and they grow into that as to protecting young girls, protecting their sisters and themselves as young boys so that they can grow to be better men to always want to protect women. Do you think this would work in terms of what we're seeing currently in South Africa and the scourge of the violence against women, children? It, it's becoming worse by the day. Let's acknowledge that we move from a premise that says there are programs in place, similar programs, but we need to upscale those programs. And as I said earlier on, take them to the churches. We have kids who attend Sunday school. Both boys and girls are there. Let's train those Sunday school teachers to understand these gender issues, to engage these, these kids there. Let's reach out to these boys. We've got scouting movements. We can take them out to camps and all of that. We are encouraging everyone to do so and make sure that we socialize them differently because some of them, they've been socialized that way from their homes, believing that it is right to have the boy child regarding himself as superior over the girl child, allocation of household duties and all of that. And we are gradually turning the tide where we are engaging even mothers to say there is no way we can bring culture to this practice. There's no space for culture in terms of abuse. But it's how we've been socialized and re-socializing ourselves is the best thing that we can do. And if a child has been exposed to any form of violence in their household, we can assist that child and make sure that that child understands that this is behavior that has been learned and it can be unlearned. Our psychologists must come on board. 
if it has gone to a point where they need psychiatric interventions, we need to do so. Support groups must be there. Parenting skills are also critical. The national strategic plan that we have crafted that will be soon approved by cabinet has got all the pillars, six pillars that is addressing to address the scourge of gender-based violence, beginning with improved access to criminal justice system, ensuring that there's prevention at all times, ensuring that there's issues of care and response speedily, because if we don't sharpen our skills in handling victims of, or survivors of any form of uh, violence, then we will be subjecting them to secondary victimization and changing norms, as I said earlier on, and doing research as well, because one of the issues that we, are, we want to focus on once the strategic plan is approved is the prevalence data so that we get a sense of the magnitude and extent of the problem. We do know that indeed what are the structural drivers, but let's have a confirmation as we engage people through research so that we have a targeted form of intervention that is evidence-based as well. Shoki, wishing you all the best during this uh, um, uh, 365 days of uh, activism, of no violence against women and children. How does one get involved? Where do they get more information with regards to this program that you're embarking on? My request first to every form of media is please give us this platform We appreciate the opportunity that we have been afforded to engage and talk to members of society. Do more. Allow us to talk, not only the department, but also afford the NPOs, the civil society organizations, that space because they don't have adequate funding to reach out to most radio stations and TV stations. If you can do that for us and share some of the messages that, 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 that we are having with yourselves, I think we can move a great deal because every sector must have a role to play in this matter. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Take and bye. Goodbye. That was uh, Acting Director General Shoki Shabalala of South Africa's Department of Women, Youth and Persons with Disabilities joining us on the line. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoko. Good morning. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa will meet with the board and management of power utility ESCOM later this morning. The president will be briefed on plans to mitigate and resolve the current electricity crisis affecting the nation. He will also visit the flood-stricken areas in Mamilodi, east of the capital, Pretoria. Ndebu Mukobo reports. South Africa's embattled power utilities in crisis the daily load shedding is fast becoming the country's staple with disastrous effects on the lives of ordinary people and the economy. And Deputy President David Mabuza has apologized for the inconvenience caused. We are mindful of the challenges that are faced by ESCOM. And probably we should take this opportunity and apologize to the public for all the inconvenience that our people, business people, are going through. Already there are fears that this could be ramped up to stage six or even the worst-case scenario which allows for 8,000 megawatts to be shared from the national grid. And President Ramaphosa wants answers. He's meeting with ESCO management this morning to find solution. 
Meanwhile, the newly appointed Power Utility Eskom CEO, Andre Dorator, must be watching developments at the power utility with interest. He will take up the position on January the 15th next year. Deputy President David Mabuza has again defended the decision to appoint Dorator, saying it was a collective and not President Sir Ramaphosa's alone. Mabuza was speaking at an SACP Special National Congress in Kempton Park, north or rather east of Johannesburg. This is a decision that we took in the deployment committee, all of us. And people are now quiet. (laughs) People are now quiet. The only person that is being blamed is the president. The decision to deploy Durator as the CEO is the decision that we took collectively. Zimbabwe says it's still receiving an uninterrupted power supply from a power utility ESCOM, despite increased load shedding in South Africa. Cash strapped Zimbabwe is forced to rely on power imports because of low generation capacity from the Kariba Hydroelectric Power Station, where water levels are low. The country's energy minister is a fortune chassis. Should there be challenges uh, in that uh, area, uh, I have no doubt that uh, our South African sisters and brothers will communicate that to us, that they are unable. But as of now, we have not received such a communication and we are continuing to receive power in accordance with the undertakings uh, that we made in our contract with them. Qatar Airways has agreed to take a 60% stake in a new 1.3 billion US dollars international airport in Rwanda. The board says a first phase of construction would provide facilities for 7 million passengers a year in the Bugisera district, about 25 kilometers southeast of the capital, Kigali. A second phase, expected to be completed by 2032, would double capacity to 14 million passengers a year. The country's infrastructure minister, Tlavegatete, told a news conference that a construction company was still being sought to build the airport and that once work starts, the first phase would take five years to complete. Qatar Airways has declined to immediately comment outside of normal business hours. The Director General of the World Trade Organization, Roberto Azevedo, says it will take a few months to fix its main body for settling trade disputes. It has grounded to a halt due to the U.S. having blocked the appointment of new judges. A minimum of three are needed, and there is just one in place. Azevedo has conceded that significant changes in the dispute settlement mechanism will be needed. It's uh, clearly a big blow because uh, the regular way that the disputes are conducted in the WTO is completely, but that doesn't mean that dispute settlement stopped. Um, In fact, uh, members can still uh, resolve their disputes through consultations and they are thinking about other mechanisms such as arbitration or good offices of the Director General. So there are a number of things that can be done that would um, be a a stopgap solution. The U.S. dollar is trading at 360.34 Nigerian Naira. 
1068 Botswana Pula, 100 Kenyan shilling, 55 cents, and 1541 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, a one US dollar will cost you 414 Brazilian roll. 6352 Russian ruble, 7077 Indian rupee, 73 Chinese yuan, and 1473 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold 1000 for 63 dollars, platinum 918 dollars per ounce, brand crude oil 63 dollars 90 cents a barrel. From an African perspective. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. And in this hour, we begin with football news. The Council for Southern African Football Association, COSAFA Under-20 Defending Champions South Africa, will meet Madagascar for the second time in four days in the 2019 tournament in Lusaka, Zambia. Amajita advanced to the semifinals after a 4-0 win over Lesotho, whilst Madagascar registered a 2-1 win over Mauritius. Both South Africa and Madagascar needed to win their respective final group matches to advance to the semifinals. But Amajita Ketika coach Helman Mkelele realized the second match against Madagascar will not be easy. I'm hoping that you know, we will continue with the very same uh, attitude uh, because now boys are starting to realize that now we are on the verge of really defending our trophy having that you know going into that game with that mentality i believe that it will build the 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 confidence and the team spirit in the boys to make sure that they create their own legacy because now this is a new team so i think that is what we're going to do on the other hand, the whole Zambia will head into the last four with a lot of confidence after finishing top of Group A with nine points. Last year, Junior Chipolopolo, who were knocked out in the semi-final stage, will want to go all the way. Zambian coach Oswat Mutapa, who was previously with the under-17 team, is confident about his charges. Overall, we're happy that we're in the semi-final, playing against Angola, another tough one, will be playing at home, we'll prepare for them. Uh, I think uh, if you look at... Uh, the selection of today's team. We were looking forward to, to the game against Angola. That's why we had to rest uh, some players. We made five changes overall. In, at least we have the other five players coming in with flesh legs. In rugby news, Hashiva Daimani has been withdrawn from the Springbok 7 squad for this, past, for this weekend's HSBC Cape Town 7s at the Cape Town Stadium after suffering a flare-up of a previous ankle injury at training. Springbok 7's coach Neil Powell said the long-term welfare of the player was paramount. Daimani will be replaced by Impi Fesser, who played in all 10 tournaments of the HSBC World Rugby 7 Series last season. Powell will name his 12-man squad for the tournament on Thursday. And still with rugby news, in Bogota, the South African women's national sevens rugby team are set to make their debut at the Cape Town Sevens this weekend in the new expanded competition at the Cape Town Stadium. And... Coach Paul Delport says there are no injury concerns and he has a full squad of 13 players to select from. 
yeah, the ladies are, are super excited. We've got New Zealand up first, and it's going to be a massive challenge for us. But for us on our journey, we, we have to play against the best teams in the world to get better. And yeah, we're really looking forward to the challenge. Uh, luckily, we've got 13 fit players. Uh, we were we were watching Megan Phillips closely because she played for Tux last weekend in Dubai, but she came through that nicely. Uh, so it's re really good to have a full contingent, and all the ladies are, are fit and uh, rearing to go. Finally, Cricket News, South African National Under-19 Cricket Coach Lawrence Mahatlane says their target for the upcoming ICC Under-19 Cricket World Cup is getting into the group stages of the tournament scheduled for South Africa shores in 2020. First, we'd like to get into the knockout stages. I think once you get there, it's on the day how well you play. And uh, I think we've got enough match winners within the group that uh, we can go all the way. But ideally, I'd first like us to focus one game at a time and, and make sure Afghanistan will be a big one. I think if you look at their squad, they've also got a couple of test players and one-day international cricketers that have just played against the West Indies. So it's crucial that we get a good start and build some momentum from there. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abe Ahmed receives Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo and South Africa reaffirms commitment to enhance its climate change plans. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutura Magada, Technical producers Fiso Mashejo and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica. And taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Kaifa Semenya with a song titled Woman Got a Right to Be.